Last week, we talked about this verse in Romans chapter 12 that says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And what I was trying to say in that was that there's a level in which we shape our behavior to be considerate of those around us. Essentially, this seems to be the Bible's take on how we share life together. But I want to jump back into Romans 12 and actually look at a little bit more that Paul says at that point, because I think it's really helpful for us as we think about sharing life together, especially as we're coming to do that for the first time in quite a while. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, you get the verse, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But the text continues, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. And then Paul says this, If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. Now, here's, here's a few verses of scripture that require you to sort of slow down a little bit. I, as I read Romans, and Romans has got some very advanced theological reflection going on it, I often find myself getting to this part and thinking, is Paul now short on time? Is he, does he know he's getting to the end of his paper and needs to get a lot in? Because it sort of feels like he loads up the batting machine with wisdom, turns it on high, and sort of fires it out at you at quite some pace. There's a lot crammed into those few small verses. Now, Paul writes this like 2,000 years ago. But when I read that passage, and I hope as you heard that passage, there's a sense in which we say, maybe this is worth paying attention to even still today in our world. And then thinking about our world, uh, journalist David Patrikarakos holds that humanity has become homo digitalis, he calls it. He says it like this. He says, since the Arab Spring, we've seen the emergence of a new type of hyper-empowered individual, networked, globally connected, and more potent than ever before, a uniquely 21st century phenomenon that I term homo digitalis. We are online, we live in this digital world, and our view of the world is being shaped and governed by that. It's been happening for a lot of years now, but especially in the past months, while we've all been in various levels of lockdown, we're shaped by our social media interactions, we're shaped by what we see and the apps we engage with online. But and there is a but to all of this, the algorithms of the internet mean that we actually exist within echo chambers in which our pre-existing prejudices are confirmed and solidified. And I know that you know that this is how it works online, but it's interesting to me how easy it is to forget that, that when I switch on my app, what I'm seeing isn't unbiased journalism. It's actually the app doing targeted group building. It's grouping me off with the people like me and then grouping you off with the people like you and we may not end up in the same group. Which is kind of why you can always switch on YouTube and find a video that agrees with you. Whether it's a brilliant idea about something or some crazy thought that you've just had, you can find somebody out there who has 
thought about it before, who agrees with you on the subject and thinks that, yes, you too should build a bunker in your basement. <laughs> the irony, however, of the internet is this. We have access to more than we have ever had before, but we see less. Like we have more data than any generation in history, but so often we act like the least informed generation of history. We act like we, we haven't really used the data that's available to us. And so what this has meant is that when we eventually encounter a different view than our own, which sometimes can take some time because of how our apps and all that work, when we do encounter a different view on our own, our reaction to it can be more severe. It's almost as if we've forgotten how to critically assess an idea, how to reason through our thinking on things. And so what has this done to us? Well, when we encounter ideas that contradict our own internal notions of justice or injustice, you commonly see us acting in, in a very particular way. It's called spite. And what I think we observe in our society now is that when we encounter an idea that we disagree with, it's no longer sufficient for us to simply disagree. We don't say, I'm not sure about that and walk away. We must react. We have to say something or post something or tweet something. And, and I would suggest that the lack of face-to-face -face interactions that we've had for the last several months has kind of made this easier for us. So, so we don't simply disagree, we spite. We look for ways that we can act to ultimately punish the person who said the thing that we disagree with. In a recent article in The Atlantic, Charlie Tyson made the following observation about spite. He said it like this, spite defies logic. We act spitefully, you know, lashing out to harm someone else, even at cost to ourselves, when the desire to punish overrides other considerations. People in the throes of spite's poisonous pleasures do not care if they injure themselves or make the whole world worse off so long as they satisfy their rancor. Yet because spite involves a self-inflicted cost, this petty and ultimately antisocial emotion bears a family resemblance to altruism. So many spiteful actors believe that they're behaving nobly, meting out justice where it's due. <laughs> now, if you're unsure of whether you believe Tyson, spend five minutes on social media. In fact, just the other day there, I saw someone recently uh, and, and they posted about the seven deadly sins of the digital age and how each of the various social media channels relate to one of them. It's, it's worth a Google uh, to laugh at yourself. Now, now, the reason that I then found Charlie Tyson's article interesting is I think it speaks to the moment that we are in right now. He observes that spite is the result of social breakdown. And I think that is where we are right now. And maybe, maybe you don't agree that we're in a place of social breakdown, but at very least, we've had a social break. We've taken a break from each other. Social life has been pretty grim for the last little while. And while that's been happening, our manners and our behaviors around each other have been affected. In fact, for some of us, perhaps our only social interactions have been online. Now, the pursuit of justice then, 
has often, I think we've seen this happen, it has been diminished down into spiting those that we disagree with. That's how we do justice nowadays, is we point out and say nasty things about the people that don't think like us. But spite isn't a good guide to acting justly or rightly. Again, Tyson says it like this, the ugly feeling is self-multiplying. Spite tends not to lead toward justice, but toward more spite. Like we cannot punish or spite our way to a better world. It just doesn't work. Well, how do we know it doesn't work, we might say? How do we know that this isn't the right way to do it? Well, as a Christian, I would say it's not what Jesus would do, is it? Again, at which point perhaps you think of that meme, that meme which says, when someone makes you angry, keep calm and ask, what would Jesus do? And then the meme continues, but remember that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. Yep, what we do is the moment we get into thinking about anger and spite and vengeance and revenge, all things that Paul told us in Romans are God's, not ours, the moment we get into that, we start thinking of Jesus clearing the temple in John chapter 2. You can read this scene, uh, it's in all four of the Gospels actually. In John chapter 2, essentially Jesus comes into the temple and starts to drive out people who are performing corrupt practices in the temple space. And he drives out money changers and, and, and people who are, who are performing all sorts of other actions which he perceives as corrupt. One scholar calls it Jesus's temple tantrum, uh, which is at least good for a laugh uh, to think about it that way. Now, what we tend to do as readers of the Bible in the contemporary age is we see this scene of Jesus coming into the temple and removing what he sees as, as, as things of injustice. And we see this moment and the utility of this story is that it justifies our own anger. And therefore we start to tread patterns of, of righteous anger. We say, oh, well, if Jesus is doing this and he's doing it against injustice, that's also what I'm doing. But here's the thing though. In a recent online video titled, If Jesus Had a Twitter Account, a grad school friend of mine, Todd Brewer, asks a really important question. He says, he says, he says this, in any of the accounts of Jesus clearing the temple, does it actually say that Jesus is angry? You can probably guess the answer that's coming here, right? It's, it's not there. And Todd then makes this fascinating observation. He says, when we talk about Jesus as angry and perhaps spiteful in the scene where he's clearing the temple, what we're doing is projecting. We tend to see an angry Jesus because we want to see an angry Jesus. We've been culturally conditioned to see an angry Jesus. We see an angry Jesus even though that's not actually present in the gospel text. It's like, whoa, is that right? Am I seeing something that's not actually there? Has, has, our, has our atmosphere adjusted our view, our perspective of what and how we see? Like, what do I see when I look at Jesus? Do I see Jesus involved in shouting match arguments with Pharisees, exasperation at his disciples, and frustrated with everybody else? Like, are we so angry? that it's all we can see in others and Jesus? Am I reading Jesus completely wrong? 
Like, do, do I lack the range of emotional awareness that I need to see other interpretations to the actions of others? I'm angry, so surely everybody else is angry as well. I'm angry, so now I'm going to see Jesus as angry to basically help me not deal with my own anger. So when we then live in a context of stunted emotional range, anger and spite are often our, our, our go-to responses to perceptions of unfairness and, and inequality. We, we, we very quickly become angry about stuff that challenges our notions of right and wrong. We, we know how we think the world should go. We know how the world's supposed to work well, at least how we would like it to work, right? And when it doesn't do that, when, when, when the world doesn't go the way that we want, our response is to be angry. So maybe you're not convinced, right? Maybe you don't buy into the idea that Jesus doesn't live with rage and anger. But here's a question for you. Does anger produce love? Does anger produce love? So a uh, little thought experiment. Imagine yourself in a scene. Uh, maybe it's a scene that you know. Maybe you encounter someone who's angry with you regularly. Uh, maybe someone who shouts at you regularly. Like, do you, do you love that person more as a result of that? When someone's angry at you, does that do wonders for your relationship? Do you have fonder feelings towards them? Do you love them more when they raise their voice at you? Does anger produce love. Which leads us to ask the question, well, does Jesus do anger? If everything that Jesus does is driven by love, is driven by this desire to show us love and teach us how to love, perhaps that's the paradigm and the lens that we think about anger in Jesus's life and ministry. So hold all that there for a second then, and let's go back to where we started in Romans chapter 12. I want to read the text for you again, just to keep it familiar in our minds. Uh, verse 15 of Romans chapter 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So, then, then, so we've got that piece of, of kind of modeling and shaping our life reactively to what other people are doing and, and, and living then, Paul says in verse 16, living in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, it's like proud, but associate with the lowly. Don't claim to be wiser than you are. That could be a, a great bio line for many of the wisdoms that we, we share on social media. But then Paul starts to ratchet it up a bit in verse 17. Do not repay evil for evil. And that's how we often work, isn't it? That's how spite works. I perceive evil, then I add more evil to the situation. But take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Again, think about that. Let's take that thought there. What is noble in the sight of all? Not just everybody that's in your echo chamber. Let's not just say the things that the people that agree with us will then call us afterwards to tell us we said great things. But is it noble in the sight of all? And then you get verse 18. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine and I will repay. So you get this classic Pauline thought, which is rooted in, in, in Hebrew scriptures, that, that we don't get involved in vengeance ourselves. That's God's job. And of course, little footnote there, how does God mete out vengeance? <laughs> 
Well, he sends Jesus to rescue us on the cross. So be careful of just waiting for the God who's going to come and wreak the vengeance that you want. But, but I'm really, really captured by that phrase, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you. If, if I am going to live peacefully, then I need to learn some self-reflection, some interior examination. Talking about this subject in his book, The Deeply Formed Life, Rich Viodas notes this. Limited reflection usually leads to dangerous reaction. Let me say that just again. Limited reflection usually leads to dangerous reaction. Whereas, he says elsewhere, interior examination is a way of life that considers the realities of our inner worlds for the sake of our own flourishing and the call to love well. Little side note for a moment. We interviewed Rich for our church midweek podcast recently, and it's available now and really worth listening to if you've read Rich's book, The Deeply Formed Life, or even if you've not. So jump in and check that out at some point soon. But but just hold on this thought from Rich here. Limited reflection leads to dangerous reaction. Paul says, as far as it depends on me. The way I am and how I interact with others is my responsibility. So there's a phrase you hear quite regularly in your life, that person makes me so mad or they make me so angry. Well, listen, don't say that because actually it's not true. The way I am and interact with others is my responsibility. So people will behave in particular ways and it might be ignorant and it might be pig-headed and it might be wrong. But how I respond is my choice. And those responses may be, they may almost feel automated, but they're actually still my responsibility. This person behaved this way and I chose to be angry. And then Paul comes in and says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably. So that's not going to fix how people behave. It's not going to fix how people act. But how you respond to that, that's the bit that depends on you. Now for Paul, he's writing this to a church in Rome. And the big issue of togetherness in the church in Rome has to do with food and holy days. It might not be the sort of most relevant moment for you in your context right now. Um, Basically, a, a predominantly Jewish Christianity was struggling with new converts who didn't follow Jewish laws. But this is what happens in a grace community, which we as a church want to be. We've not been gathered together into the same space because we're all similar. We've been gathered together by Christ who brought peace between us and God. So peace is sorted out between us and God, vertically if you would say, but now we have to learn how to live peaceably with each other. And that's where it gets complex. So Paul doesn't leave it in verse uh, in chapter 12 of, of Romans. In chapter 14 of Romans, he comes back to this issue. And at verse 13, he says this, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, Paul says, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, 
then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Now, again, Paul's talking about food issues in Romans chapter 14 there. But you can transfer the issue of food to any modern divisive issue. So take out food issues and come back to divided views on coronavirus or divided views on racial reconciliation or divided views on vaccines. They can all go in there and now come back and read this text again. But notice what Paul does in this text. He sidesteps the issue of camps, tribes, positions, sides, polarizing opinions. He says nothing of rightness and wrongness. It's not that Paul doesn't think there's rights and wrongs. He simply asks this question, is it worth division? Or can we live in grace? And he asks us to live in grace, even when we're hanging out with the people we disagree with. So we're all gonna be gathered back into shared spaces again soon, and we need grace for one another. We're called to share the journey together. That's what church is doing. And can we hear Paul's phrases? The end of the bit we read of Romans 14 at the end of what we read in Romans 12. Make every effort towards peace, Paul says. Earlier he says, as far as it depends on you. So just notice what Paul's doing in this. He's rejecting spite and anger, that's kind of obvious, but he's also rejecting fairness and equality. Well, I didn't expect you to say that, you might think. But Paul's actually asking us not to pursue fairness and equality. He's asking us to make sacrifices for each other. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in another one of Paul's letters, he is leading the church there towards a vision of how they should participate in the communion meal, the Eucharist meal. And Paul notices again, in another one of his churches, there's a lot of divisions. So whenever there's divisions in churches, don't forget, this isn't new, right? And in this case, they're trying to treat each other fairly. So they're gathering around the communion table and, and they're, they're sort of attempting to treat everyone the same. Of course, it's not working. Uh, and what's happening is some of the sort of wealthier people who have more uh, resources are, are generally at the front of the line for the food lineup. And the people who really need the food are not getting any. And Paul comes in with the same logic that he talks about in Romans. He proposes a solution to the Corinthian church that isn't technically fair. He suggests that in points of division, we don't try to find fair and we don't try to find equality. We find what's best for the other. Some folks were hungry. Paul's solution isn't rations. Paul's solution isn't to come in and say everybody gets the same amount of food. But he actually instructs those who are able to eat elsewhere. 
so that there's more food for the hungry. Paul says, if you have food at home, eat at home so the people that don't have food at home have more to eat. Sharing life together involves sacrifice. It involves not always getting your way. It involves being considerate for someone who thinks differently from you. Sharing life together involves that Christ-shaped commitment to put others first. As far as it depends on you, is what Paul says. So may you come to realize that much more depends on you than you think. May you know that you have the ability to choose peace over division. May you find patience and strength to reject spite and anger and choose instead love and compassion. And may you, as much as it is possible, choose to come out of this pandemic and choose peace. Grace and peace to you.